And when I look at you, it's like I don't have any other place to look, you know. <laughs> and so, uh, but seriously, do pray for those that are out. We've got a lot of folks that are traveling, and I want to—I want you to know that I appreciate your faithfulness in being here. It's just always a blessing to get together with God, with God's people. Appreciate all of them that were out here working yesterday. If you see anybody kind of hobbling around, uh, gimping as if they're they're sore, uh, th- th- we probably are. <laughs> We got a lot of work done yesterday. We had about 30 people, I think, showed up for the pancake breakfast. I appreciate uh, Terry Emmett and all of her crew for putting that together. We ate till we were sick, and then we got up and worked a while and got a whole lot done. If you notice the place looking pretty sharp this morning, it's because of all the work that went into uh, the day yesterday. And I want everybody to know how much we appreciate uh, all of that. All right, well, open your Bibles, if you would, please. James chapter 4, James chapter 4. Uh, I enjoy coming to the Lord's house. I started to, to ask a series of questions. I was first going to ask you how many would rather be here than at the hospital. And most of the hands I see would go up. How many would rather be here than in prison? Yeah, okay, most of us. There are a few that are, I'm worried about. But then I got to thinking, well, you know what? Then I'd have to ask how many would rather be here than at the beach? How many would rather be here than at IHOP? That, that's even worse, right, for some of us. <laughs> so I said, well, you know what, I'm just going to leave it lay and just tell you, I'd rather be here than anywhere I can imagine. How's that? And I'm glad to be around the Word of God and God's people and just finding out what God has for us, uh, feasting on the man of His Word to get us through the week. And so I appreciate you folks being here and being a part of what God is doing in us today. James chapter 4, I'm going to ask you if you would please to stand with me. Uh, out of reference to the Word of God, we're going to read a rather lengthy portion of Scripture this morning. I'll try to make it uh, not too agonizingly slow, uh, but we want to read it in order to get the effect of it. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth within us, uh, that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for bringing us this morning to your house. I do thank you for the faithfulness of your people. Lord, we thank you that there are people that love you and want to serve you and want to be counted amongst your people. And I praise you, Lord, for the testimony and the faith that is necessary to bring about that consistency. And I pray that you would increase our faith this morning, that you would give us those things that we need in order to wage a successful battle 
through the course of the coming week. Lord, we don't know the day or the hour when you come. We believe that your coming is soon. We pray with John, even so, come, Lord Jesus. But as you tarry, I pray that you would give us the power that we need and the wisdom that we need uh, to be able to live lives that are pleasing to you and effective in reaching out to those that don't yet know you. Lord, we know that you've left us here for a reason, and there's a purpose for us to accomplish. And so, so I ask you to allow us to accomplish that and not allow us to get in our own way or in your way as you would try to use us. Uh, Lord, I ask for the presence of your spirit this morning in this service. As your vessel, I pray for forgiveness of sins. I pray, as always, for a fullness of your spirit, that the words that I speak would be empowered and directed by you, and, Lord, that they would penetrate to the hearts of your people and that your word would have its purpose accomplished in their hearts and lives according to your promise that your word would not return to you void. I want to pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would receive you before they leave this place. May we all be obedient to your leadership. Where I pray these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. One of the reasons that I like to preach a series of messages or to preach through a book, as I've been doing here in the book of James, is because by doing so, I'm forced to declare the whole counsel of God. I can't cherry-pick my favorite subjects and just preach on them as I would like to sometimes, nor can I avoid certain difficult passages or themes that are taught very plainly to us in the Scriptures. I say that not to scare you, but because there's a recurring theme in the New Testament that comes up here in our passage today that's somewhat unpleasant to some, albeit not necessarily. And I say that because some of the things that we perceive as being negative or, or derogatory or hard to take Uh, I sometimes, quite frankly, don't understand the concept because it's all the Word of God and it's all for positive effect. But having said that, we understand that it's not negative thought that we're talking about today, although some take it to be so. Uh, I believe mainly they take it that way because they've already fallen into the trap, which I must now warn you about. In dealing with what we've been calling fake faith, I've been preaching through the book of James for different, from a different perspective than I've ever taken before on this particular book, and I must say that it's been enlightening for me. I pray that it has been for you as well. As I say today, we come to this repeating theme that seems to crop up in one form or another almost in every one of the New Testament epistles, and quite frankly, it appears many places in the Old Testament as well. I'm talking about the principles of Christian separation. Now, the goal today is not to break down for you the appearance of separation or what forms it ought to take in every individual in church. I will touch lightly on some of that, but without dwelling on it later on in the message. Rather, the goal is to point out to you the importance of biblical separation and to deal with the problem that so often crops up in conjunction with the teaching and practice of separation, that being arrogance and uh, uh, hatefulness even toward others that are around us. Let me say that in essence, Christians are not better than anyone else in the world. You understand that we are all of Adam's race. We were looking at that in one of the Sunday school classes this morning, and it certainly is still true. Uh, We all must face our Creator. The difference consists of what Jesus has done, miraculously, in each one of us to transform us and give us of His nature. 
In redeeming us, he also sanctified us unto himself. That is, he set us aside exclusively for his own use. We belong to him. And therefore, we have a different way of looking at literally everything about life. When we understand the grace of God, it's impossible for us to look down our noses at, even, at, at anyone, even though our behavior or their behavior may be reprehensible or even abominable. We, by the Spirit of God that dwells within us, are to love the world as he loves it. Hence the great paradox. Are we to love the world as he loves it, or are we to see it as an enemy? The answer, obviously, is yes. We are. Both of those, you say, well, they're opposites. They're really not when you understand what God is saying. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning through the course of the message. So please follow along as I attempt to explain what the Bible has to say on the message, on the matter. Today's message is the fourth in our faith, fake faith series. I believe that the passage we've read this morning shows us that one of the characteristics of fake faith is what I'm calling for our purposes today, heartless separation. Fake faith is demonstrated or characterized by heartless separation. I believe that God's people go to one ex- tend to go to one extreme or the other. We tend either to water down the principles of God, personal godliness or personal holiness to the extent where we can basically do whatever we want to do, uh, taking uh, the first part of the verse that says, all things are lawful unto me to heart, but forgetting to read the rest of it, but all things are not expedient, right? And so we'll go either go to that extreme or we'll go to the other extreme, where we'll say, well, you know, I'm, 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 uh, what is, what is the old saying? I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with the gals that do, you know. And we just kind of run, look down our noses at people that are different in their standards of separation than, uh, than we are. And so, what I want to try to help you to do this morning is to understand the scriptural balance that ought to exist as we look at the condition of the world around us, at our own condition in Jesus Christ and at what the Scripture says very plainly in the Word. We want to start out by pointing out to you uh, that when we're talking about heartless separation, we must very hastily assure you of the fact that separation biblically is essential. This is something that God teaches us, as I said in the introduction over and over again. Every single epistle, almost without exception, in the New Testament deals in one way or another with this principle of personal holiness, Godliness, separation unto God, separation from the world and from the activities in which the world involves. And so you can't live the transformed life until you understand that God expects his people to be different. He expects us to be separated unto him. God makes it clear to us what a Christian's attitude toward the world ought to be. James chapter 4 and verse 4, the text that we started with this morning, we're going to focus on this particular verse. It's a verse that we've read many times, but the Bible says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Now, you would think as God begins that particular verse, or as James, writing obviously under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, uh, begins that verse, he's talking to a bunch of really, really bad people. I mean, these are people that are living in adultery, right? These are people that are openly uh, following after, and he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. And then you read on and and find out that he's not necessarily talking about physical adultery. He's talking about spiritual adultery, uh, also called idolatry. And he says, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the is enmity with God. Uh, whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. 
We can go to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Again, a very well-known passage, and I'm going to kind of run through this first part rather quickly, so hang on quickly, uh, tight, if you will. If you need to write these verses down and come back to them later on, you can. But 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Love not the world. So uh, James 4, 4 tells us that he that loves God or is a friend of the world is the enemy of God. First John says very plainly, very pointedly, very directly, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So God says, love not the world. Second Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 14 through 18 is, again, another passage that we often go to when trying to establish the principles of godly separation or holiness, if you will. By the way, there is no distinction. Holiness and separation are the same thing. Holiness means set aside exclusively unto God, and that's what being separated means. We are separated from the world. We are separated from sin. We are separated unto God exclusively for his use. And so it's the same principle that we're dealing with. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, the Bible says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God, that is you, by the way, uh, with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now, that's just a couple of the passages where the New Testament teaches us that we are to be separated from the world, that we are not to love the world, that we're supposed to have a very distinct attitude toward the world. And so the question that was asked at the beginning, are we to love the world or are we not to love the world? The latter part of the answer is, yes, we are not to love the world. I know some of you are confused, your head's reeling, right? Your eyes are spinning. Uh, but hopefully you'll understand it a little bit better as we go through. As we're talking about the love of the world, you need to understand that God in these passages is talking about two specific areas. Go back to James chapter 4, verse 1. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war and ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lust. Now, if you read the rest of that in its context, James in those verses is speaking to believers. He's speaking to Christians and basically saying, you know what your problem is? You can't get what you want because you want the wrong things and you want it for the wrong reasons. Right? You're wanting things that pertain to this world and to this life, and you're wanting them so that you can consume them upon your lust, and none of the things that you're asking, that you're fighting over and warring over, are being asked because of or based on the authority of Jesus Christ our Savior. And we've been talking about that a little bit in our studies in the book of John. But in those verses, he tells us the things of the world are one of the things that causes this kind of a dissension or division in our own hearts and lives, and also amongst one another in the church. 
We go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, the verse that we read just a moment ago. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So it breaks it down very specifically for us. What are we talking about when we're talking about the world? Well, we're talking about specific areas, first being the things that are in the world. Stuff, as I like to call it, right? They're not to be connected or attached to, overly attached to, concrete material items uh, in this world. Uh, we don't have time to develop the thought completely. We've talked about it many times before, and this is all review for many of you that have been around for a while. But Matthew 6 and verse 24 says this, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so you can't live your life in the pursuit of money and live your life to serve God. That's what the Bible calls earlier on in the book of James the double-mindedness. And the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, James chapter 1 and verse 7. So he's talking about the material things of this world. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so we see the principle of materialism there. Let me just put it this way, if I may. Materialism is at its best a distraction for the child of God. And at its worst, it is idolatry. It is the pursuit of something that is not God. It is dedicating life and everything that is done in life to that which is not God. And so we're talking about the things of the world, but not only that, we're also talking about the, the, the gene, general world system. Okay, uh, That includes uh, the manner of operation, the way the world works, uh, the system of thinking, the way the world thinks, all of those things are included in uh, this, this world that we're talking about. The, the Greek word that's actually used uh, for world in our text in James chapter 4 and in other places in the New Testament is the word cosmos. You've probably seen that word before, right? And it refers obviously to those created things that God has made, but it refers specifically in these contexts not to the planet nor to the people that are in this world, but rather to the system by which the world operates. We know that the prince of the power of the air is the god of this world. He is, he, he is the enemy of our souls. And so the world system is what God is warning against. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says this, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. So that's what he's talking about. The course or the direction of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, uh, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Uh, going back to First John chapter 5 and verse 19, he says that we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in darkness. So it's the system that exists in the world over which there is the God of the world or Satan himself. What does God say our attitude toward the world ought to be in that context? Well, he tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we're not to be conformed to it. That means that we're not to be shaped in its likeness. Okay? So he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Be not conformed to this world, but rather be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the word conformed in this particular passage is talking about a mold. Uh, it's been a long, long time, but when I was a, when I was a child... Uh, there was a there was a period there when uh, 
when candle making was very popular, right? And I remember both my sister and I got these kits for Christmas, I believe, one year uh, to make candles. Uh, one of them was dipping the candles in wax, and, you know, you just keep doing that, and eventually you end up with a tapered uh, candle. But the ones that we really liked were molds. And you'd stick, the, you'd stick the wick in the bottom of the thing. It always seemed amazing to me. Stick the wick in the bottom of it, and you pour the, the paraffin in on top of it. And you know what happened? The paraffin that was pour, poured into the mold took the shape of the mold that it was in. And so we were making bears, and we were making, uh, you know, anchors, and I don't know what all kinds of... Uh, they didn't burn very good, but they sure looked nice, Right? Uh, the, the point being that what was poured into the mold was conformed to that mold. And so God says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be shaped after the likeness of the world. Don't take its image upon yourself. Why is that? Because we're to be fashioned in the image of him who has called us by his name. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8 tells us. And so God says that we're not to be conformed to the world. By the way, you can't look like both because Jesus doesn't look anything like the world. In fact, they're direct opposites. That's why repentance is necessary to turn away from the world and to Christ. But that's a different sermon as well. Overcome the world, First John tells us. Not only are we not to be conformed to it, the Bible tells us that we are to overcome it. We are to conquer it. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And so God says, don't be conformed to the image of the world, but rather be transformed, transformed from it. Uh, we are not to be overcome by it, but rather to overcome it. And thirdly, we are not to set our affections on it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Let me, let me give you a little litmus test for your own personal use and edification, okay? At any time in your personal life, when you find yourself more drawn to or more affected by things of this life than things of that life. That is, you are more focused on this world, anything about it, than you are on heaven and getting there and being with the Savior and being like Jesus. Then you're doing what this particular passage warns us about. We're not to set our affections on things on the earth. Rather, our affections are to be set in heaven where are set above and not on the things of the earth. So God says, don't let your affections be set on the things of this world. And this thing's giving me fits this morning. Never mind. All right. Uh, the next thing, Romans chapter 8, verse 7, are talking about what our attitude toward the world is to be. We are to recognize its enmity against God. We, we mentioned this in passing a moment ago. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. You need to understand that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them for they're spiritually discerned. We understand that the lost man, the lost individual, only has one nature. It's an Adamic nature, and it's contrary to God. And he can't receive the things of God. So what I'm trying to say is the only kind of a mind that a person outside of Christ has is a carnal mind. 
He can't think any other way. That's just the way he's programmed to think, or she. But once we are Jesus Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. God gives us a part of himself. Literally, God dwells within us, and he gives us that desire to be pleasing to the Lord and to glorify the Lord. And now where we could not be good before, we can now. Not by our own strength, but by the strength of the Spirit of Christ that's in us and by the redeeming power of his blood. So the point is that God has changed us so that we are no longer colluding with the enemy. The enemy being, in this case, the world. And any time a Christian begins to think that the world is really not that bad, you're headed down a dangerous road. Because God tells us over and over again, yes, it is. It's directly opposed to God. It is in direct opposition. It is an enmity with God. And so we as believers are to be separated from that mindset. Separation then means a separation from those influences and practices. I don't live my life to be pleasing in those areas. It means a separation from sin, yes. The Bible tells us that we're abstained from all appearance of evil. Uh, you understand that a Christian is not held accountable to God for his sin because there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We are held accountable for what we do with Jesus Christ and the way that we live for him or not, uh, right? And God holds us accountable for that. But our sin itself is under the blood of Jesus Christ. It's all forgiven. Uh, and if we were held accountable for, all, for our sin, then we could lose the salvation that we have. But thankfully, Christ has washed it all away. He's given us that freedom from condemnation. He's delivered us from that. But he expects us in our daily existence, our daily lives, to live lives that are free from the, the influence or the appearance of evil. In Jude, verse 23, he says it this way, Others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. That's pretty extreme, isn't it? God says, hate even the garment that's been spotted by that fleshly nature. Revelation 3 and verse 4, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. Now, what's he talking about? Go back and rest, read the rest of the passage, and you'll find that the church of Sardis was involved in uh, compromise with the world, essentially. And he said, but you have some people there that have not defiled their garments, and the Bible says that they should walk with men white, for they're worthy. The point that I'm trying to make here, and the Bible tells us over and over again, uh, that when we're talking about personal holiness, when we're talking about separation unto God, there is an element there that involves a consciousness of those things that are uh, sinful, those things that are offensive to God, those things that are abomination to him. I've told you once, uh, at least, and probably more than that, that God hated lying in the Old Testament, and he hasn't changed his mind, right? He still hates lying. God hated theft in the Old Testament, and he hasn't changed his mind about that. In fact, if you go down through the law, everything that God says don't do it, he still doesn't want you to do it, right? And everything God says do it, he still wants you to do it. Uh, he hasn't changed his mind about any of those things, but we're not saved by that, obviously. We are, however, many times sanctified by it. So we set personal standards. We can call them fences, that we build or that we allow the Holy Spirit to build around us. Uh, my purpose this morning is not to build those fences for you. I do want to mention 
that these include things like, uh, by the way, these are, are personal, uh, they are between you and God, although there are strong scriptural principles behind each of the standards or fences that we build. Uh, this is between you and God. And that's one of the reasons I don't stand up here and, and preach most of the time about, well, you ought to do this and you ought not to do that, talking about the, uh, you know, the, the places that you go and the people that you hang around and those kinds of things. I think sometimes it might be better served to do that, but nonetheless, uh, we're talking about, when we're talking about fences or matters of personal separation, we're talking about things like where I go. Let me give you an example. I can't remember the last time I went to a bar. Right? Okay, now, when I was a kid, by the way, a restaurant was one thing and a bar was something different. Any day, these days, sometimes they're hard to discern the one from the other, right? And so, but I don't go to the ones that say that they're bar, right? Uh, we, we don't go to those places. Now, by the way, this is me. And there are reasons for that. I, I don't go to gambling halls. I don't go to Las Vegas. Well, I went there one time, but I drove through it. Ugliest place on earth. Anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I don't do those things. Now, listen, uh, why? There are reasons. I'm not going to say, but part of the reason is because I don't want to be drawn away into those things. I don't go to dances. I don't go to a lot of these different kinds of things because I don't want that influence, okay? So where I go uh, has to do with how I dress. Uh, I, I, I don't dress skimpy or alluring. Somebody, Not that I could, right? <laughs> But not ostentatious either, not identifying with wickedness or godless subcultures, uh, not promoting sinful products or behaviors. I have to tell you, uh, I hate to chase a rabbit, but I got to, just to be honest. I stopped at a garage sale the other day. I guess it's been a bit, probably about a year ago now. I used to play a lot of golf. I haven't played much lately. Uh, but my golf bag was all ratty and torn up. And so we stopped at a garage sale, and they had a, gr- a nice-looking uh, golf bag there. I said, man, that, that's cool. In fact, that was the reason we stopped. I was driving by, I saw it there, and I pulled over and, and went to ask, how much do you want for your golf bag? He told me, I don't remember, 10 or $15. And I said, well, okay, that sounds like a good deal. I bought the golf bag, took it home, put all my golf clubs in it, and then looked at the side of it, and it said Michelob. And I said, yeah, right, I'm going to go play golf with my preacher friends with a golf bag that's advertising Michelob, right? I said, no, I don't think so. So. Uh, that that thing is still shitting my shed. I haven't got it out. Why? Because of the identification there. You understand what I'm saying? So there's not anywhere in the Scripture where God says, Thou shalt not buy a Michelob golf bag. But I guarantee you I wouldn't do it on purpose, okay, uh, because I don't want to be identified with that. So this applies to personal appearance in general. God expects us to look like children of his. Uh, it affects what I listen to or watch. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to mention it. It affects even what I will or will not say in a conversation. All those things are matters of personal standards or personal separations, and God tells us that those are important. One of the reasons we meet together, by the way, as often as we do, you understand this church is weird. We have church three times a week, whether we need to or not, right? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Why do we do that? Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I mentioned this before. I've got to mention it to you once again. One of the reasons we come together is that we may gain strength one from another in building fences and helping us to see where those lines need to be drawn in our personal lives. When you miss, you become more vulnerable. And, by the way, you also demonstrate sometimes an existing distraction 
by the things of the world. I want to quickly get to the important part of the message, not that the first point was not important. There are only two points to my message, by the way, this morning, so you can relax if you're worried about, okay, we're going to have a five-point message, and each one of them is going to be 20 minutes long. Now, uh, separation, you need to understand this, folks. When we talk about the biblical principles of separation, we're not talking a hateful, critical spirit. Biblical separation is not hateful. Go back to James chapter 4, verse 10. The Bible says this, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Later on, it tells us that we're not to be judges uh, of one another, but we'll leave that judgment up to the Lord. There's one lawgiver, he tells us in verse 12, who is able to save and to destroy, who art thou that judgest another? In our separation from the world, we must closely guard ourselves from the attitude wherein we might be tempted to somehow or other look down our noses at the world and say, because I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with the gals that do, I am therefore better than those who don't have those same standards that I have. What does the Bible say? God loves the world, does he not? John 3.16, I bet you could quote that one. Maybe not all the verses that I've read this morning, but you could quote this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Can also remind you that God tells us in Mark chapter 16 that he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. By the way, folks, this automatically precludes monastic living. Why is it that we as Bible-believing Baptists don't go up into the mountains someplace, build us a monastery, dig a hole in the rock, or something like that, and separate ourselves from the world since we believe from separation? Well, because it's not that kind of separation. We don't believe in isolation. We don't isolate ourselves from the world. We live in the world, but we don't accept or adapt to its image. God loves the world. He sent us out into it. John chapter 20, verse 21, then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. John 17 and verse 18, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. The point is that we've been sent by Jesus into the world. Now listen, how, is that, how, how can that be if God says don't love the world? Well, he's talking about a different aspect of the world. We are to love the souls that are in the world with all of our hearts, with the love that only Jesus Christ can give us with the Holy Spirit love that dwells within us. Our enmity on the world, with the world on this level, by the way, originates with them and not with us. Does the Bible not teach us that we are to love our enemies? Last time I read it, it did. Unless somebody's changed it overnight. Now, it still says that, right? That we are to love those that despitefully use us. We need to understand that if there's an enmity, a personal enmity, between us and the people of the world, it's because it originates with them. It's not because I've said, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. I'm better than you are. Right? But rather because just by being around them, just by acting like a child of God, just by being a bright light, they have a tendency to draw away, don't they? What does the Bible say? John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were not of the world, and the world, the world would love his own. Excuse me, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. 
John chapter 17, verses 14 and 15. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. God, the prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ was not that we would be isolated from the world, but rather that we would be protected from the evil influence that's in the world. Let me just remind you that many friends, and I'm putting the word friends in quotation marks here, many friends will depart from you. First, when you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. Any of you ever noticed that? Those of you that were saved out of a life of sin. Now, some of us were saved young, and quite frankly, at nine years old, I didn't have a whole lot of friends to lose. Uh, but, 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 you know, some people were saved older or later in life, and the day they trusted Christ, they didn't, they didn't change necessarily the way that they treated their friends, but somehow or other, just being around them, their friends like said, well, you're not any fun anymore, right? You, you don't do the things you used to do. Uh, it says, I've given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Look at what First Peter chapter 4, verse 4 says. Wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. <laughs> this is what the world does. They see that you don't go to the places they go, you don't act like they do, and so there must be something bad wrong about you, not realizing that they're the ones that are upside down, right? First John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. This is made an application to those who have professed to be believers but still go back to the attractions of the world. The point is that when they leave, when there's an enmity between us and the individual people of the world, it's on their part, not on ours. But the Bible teaches us that we're to love them without yielding to their influence that I'm to love them with the love of Jesus Christ, that I'm to love them with all of my heart and do all that I can to reach them with the gospel, while all the time not seeking to please them. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Proverbs 29 tells us that the fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be saved. So I don't live my life to please men, but I don't necessarily go out of my way to offend them and make them mad just because I'm a Christian and they're not. Okay, uh, don't follow after their activities. Psalm 50, verse 18, wilt thou, when thou sawest a thief, how, uh, how the, excuse me, then thou consentest with him and hast been partaker with adulterers. I <laughs> said, listen, that's not pleasing to God when you act like the world. You don't run with them in their activities. I do want to warn you that you need to be very careful how companionable you are with those of the world. Proverbs 13, and verse 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs 9 and verse 6, forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 and 34, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now, verses 34 and 35 are telling us that one of the reasons some have not the knowledge of God is because Christians have conformed themselves to, after the evil communications, instead of being that light and salt that they ought to be. And so he said, I speak this to your shame. Revelation 18 and verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. So we are not necessarily to run with them, we're not but we are to love them. We're not to seek to please them or be afraid of them. We don't participate in their activities, but we do seek to win them for Jesus Christ. We seek to be a positive influence in their lives and influence them for the purposes and the causes of Jesus. 
Let me just finish the message by saying this. The tendency that many of us have, or some of us have, not this church, obviously, but other churches, right? Tendency that some of us have to kind of look down our noses on people stems from a prideful heart. Go back to our text, if you would, please. James chapter 4, verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Verse 12 of the same context. The Bible says there, there's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why, is, why didst thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Now, listen, folks. Salvation is briefly defined in this. The great of, grace of God manifests in our life. Right? Why are we saved? Why are we different? Because of the grace of God. God found us when we were yet in our sins. Christ died for us. He redeemed us unto himself. He saved us by his blood. And then he transformed us. He changed who we are. What is there in that on our part to be proud of? Everything I've got, I got from God. So my glory, if I'm going to glory, I need to glory in the Lord. I need to remind you while we're on the subject, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world and with the covetous or with covetous or with extortioners or idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. Uh, the point that we need to understand here is that those of the world act like what they are. It's not surprising when someone who is lost acts like a, well, like a lost person, right? That's what they are. doesn't mean that I love them less. It means that I pray for them more and I reach out more to them with the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that, but for the grace of God, you would be in the same situation. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were some of you, but you're washed, but you're sanctified, but you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me conclude simply by saying this. When we're talking about faith, faith, fake faith, I mentioned at the beginning that there are two extremes. There is a, a large group of Christianity today that is what I would call fake faith on the licentious side, meaning uh, I believe in Jesus Christ. I can do anything I want. I can live just like the world. In fact, you are totally indistinguishable from the world except for the fact that you go to church on Sunday morning. Everything else is exactly the same. Maybe some of the terminology that you use is different. And most of much of Christianity today in our culture, that's what it is, licentious fake faith. But the other extreme is fake faith that goes so far on the side of separation that would become hateful and critical and mean toward the world. Listen, folks, we're to love the world. Talking about the people of the world. But I certainly don't love the worldly system. I don't love the, the, the way of thinking of the world. I don't love the sins of the world. For that's what crucified my Lord and Savior. The constant battle for the child of God is how to love the world with Christ-like love and yet not to be a part of it. You're called to be a peculiar people. Is there anything different about you? Do you make ungodly people uncomfortable just by your presence? If not, why not? Will you allow the Spirit of God to teach you this morning how to think like God? Lost friend, if you're here this morning, I want you to know that I love you. That no one here looks down on you. We are, however, very concerned about your eternal soul. 
We'd also love for you to know the completeness and the satisfaction that comes from being what God created you to be. So the invitation for you this morning is will you give us the opportunity to introduce you to him today. Will you stand with me please with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Father, thank you for what you've given us in your word this morning. We thank you for the principles that are there and the practical level at which they need to be applied to our daily lives. I pray that we'll not be forgetful hearers of the word but doers of it. I pray, Lord, that we would respond in obedience this morning. Have your will and way in this invitation time, I pray in Jesus' name.